Hello and welcome to Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer. Very, very special episode. We may be finding out who Satoshi is on this program. I don't want to. I don't want to oversell it, but uh, that could that could be about be what's about to happen next. Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Medium. Medium has tons of great writing about crypto. They've probably named five or six different Satoshi in different articles in Medium, so you could do it as a, a choose your own adventure type thing. If you want to become a member, it's five bucks a month. It helps support writers. It helps support the show. And we appreciate it. My guest this week is a friend of mine. He is uh, he is not uh, he is not a crypto person. He is a normal person. So if you've been waiting for a person who is normal to come on the show, uh, he is here. His name is Evan Ratliff. Uh, I will uh, let him introduce himself after the music. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Tuesday, July 9th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $12,567. Hello, Evan. Hey, Aaron. Uh, long-time listener, first-time guest. I, I love it. Uh, I have to say, I, I take a deep pleasure when my friends who are not crypto people's work causes them to have to crash into the crypto lane. I would have not picked you as someone who would be interested in uh, in Bitcoin. I Actually, in some ways, I fit the profile of someone who would be interested in Bitcoin for a variety of reasons. I've never really spent much time with it. I've, never, I've certainly never owned any Bitcoin. Yeah. I've never engaged in the trading of any cryptocurrency, and I've never written about it, really. Um, but th- the grand total of my exposure actually comes from listening to you and Jay talk about it, only about 10% of which I actually understand. Well, I feel like you've been like a Z-Lig, not a Z-Lig on crypto history, but you've crossed paths with many Z-Ligs. Like you were friends with Josh Behrman, who did a lot of the Silk Road reporting. I know that you're close with people at Wired who um, have been involved in some um, Satoshi whiffs historically. So it's not like the who is Satoshi story is so far away from your journalistic lane. But I have to say that I kind of thought we had put this story to bed a couple years ago. Like it kind of seemed like, you know, like in a cold case where they're like, we've checked out all the leads. Looks like we're never going to catch that killer. Like there was a long period where there was a big Satoshi story every year, I felt like. Mm -hmm. And then we've had kind of a lull in Satoshi media. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I mean, that's one reason I never tackled it. Partly, so many pieces had been done. By the time I was ever taking a look at it, yeah, so many pieces had been done. Some of them had whiffed. Some of them, the funny thing is if you look back at them, everyone thinks they whiffed, but they only, only to the extent that the person they were pegging to be Satoshi just denied, and then everyone said, well, it must not be them, and then the next one comes up. But I think certainly the Craig Wright situation... I think deterred people from continuing to float people both because and I dealt with this myself like to what extent are you going to deal with Craig Wright as a possible Satoshi in an article where you already have a lot to explain so you have to deal with all of that and then the other thing is no matter what you think about any of that now that I've spent some time reporting it I mean there are clearly in that situation there are forged documents now who Mm -hmm. forged the documents is a matter of some dispute we could talk about that but I think once you get into that situation, journalistically, it's just very hard. You can't trust anyone that comes at you with something. Everyone has an agenda. I just feel like it's such a mess now. I mean, people are still still doing it. There have been two floated in the last two weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
getting hot again. <laughs> People coming for your corner. Maybe it's a cyclical thing, and the new Satoshi just comes around after every w- once in a while. I want to get to the Craig Wright trial because it's weirdly the inciting incident of this whole Satoshi hunt. But the whole situation with Craig Wright and the and the forged documents it reminds me a little bit of the Stephen Glass controversy where people are like how or actually maybe this wasn't Stephen Glass who's the New York Times fab that fabulous, was um, uh, uh, Jason Blair Jason Blair yeah I can't remember who this was said about it applies to both of them people said how did the uh, fact checking process not catch these guys and the fact checking process is not meant to catch someone who is openly lying and forging documents and emails like journalism is sort of built on the idea that at least the things that you are looking at are true and once people start faking documents well then you're getting into like outright fraud and and that i think journalists are not i mean journalists in the case of craig wright have revealed that someone fraudulently changed documents and then sent them to a court which i would say is highly audacious but uh in general it's a difficult place to be. It sort of puts you in the in the realms of the amateur Reddit detective when you're going like, uh, is this photoshopped or not? Yeah, and, but, but I will say in that particular case, and we can go into the details of it if, if it makes sense, but I think there are documents that actually those online communities have identified in a kind of forensic manner the flaws in the documents. And yep. I, it, it appears to me from the latest court hearing and transcripts that no one disagrees that there are forged documents. It's just a matter of one side saying, well, someone broke into the computer and forged the documents in order to make me look bad. And the other side saying, no, you forged the documents and then submitted to this court. But then once everyone accepts that there are forged documents, you can figure out that they're forged. But then what do you trust? Like, which of these documents can you trust at all? And it, and it just becomes a tremendous mess for a, a journalist to try and sort through without a, a lot of time just being able to focus and look at everything. And that's the other thing about the Satoshi situation is there have been so many misfires that it's hard for any particular reporter to take the time that it would take to go through everything again. Well, in the case of Craig Wright, it sort of puts you in a position where you start having to judge the character of the people, not just the evidence. And Craig Wright's character is, if there is someone who's running around while he's asleep like changing documents on his email servers. He has an amazing capacity to end up in these situations that I've never heard about anyone else ending up in ever before. I mean, it didn't take a internet detective to look and see that the dates on some of these uh, emails and documents does not match the day of the week that's listed on them. It's not exactly like high, high level grand hacking. It's like more like... Uh, when I used to make fake driver's license when I was in high school and we would just take a number from one part in Photoshop and copy it and paste it over. It's more like on that skill level of forgery. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you from what I've seen. I will say, to say I'm neutral doesn't really make sense. Like I'm, I'm a reporter. Like I don't have a stake in this yep. situation, but I am very interested in the trial and I'm I'm thinking about reporting on it further. And I would only say in answer to that, that doesn't really resolve the question of who the for the for if the forger was an amateur it still could be that right. craig wright is an amateur forger but it could also be that the person who broke into the computers that was trying to screw him over with the australian tax office which appears to be the claim in court they were themselves uh, an amateur so 
it, you can't get to the base level of truth through that method because there's always an answer to it. So right, right. now you could argue that's how you would operate if you had a big house of cards you were trying to maintain. Like, I think there's arguments to be made, but I didn't really assess that. That might be for a future article, but I felt like I was trying to get at this particular question that arose. So let's let's zoom way, way back. What year did you first write about Paul LaRue, the mastermind? So I first found out about Paul LaRue in late 2014. Actually, I, I started following the case in 2013 when one of his henchmen was arrested, but Paul LaRue was not a known figure at that time. And essentially, Paul LaRue, just to give a little background, he's a former programmer who then started an online prescription pill network where he sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of painkillers to American customers through a kind of genius setup. And then he parlayed that money into an enormous crime syndicate that he ran out of the Philippines. He's South African and Zimbabwean, but he was operating out of the Philippines. He engaged in almost every crime you can think of, arms trafficking, major, major drugs, drug trafficking, intimidation and violence, a lot of weird stuff like starting a compound in Somalia that was defended by a militia and doing all sorts of gold deals all over Africa, timber companies, all kinds of crazy stuff. So I started reporting on him in really in 2013, but his name came to light in 2014. So I first published stories about him in the Atavist magazine, uh, which is the magazine where I was formerly the editor in 20, in 2016. So you're following Paul LaRue. Paul LaRue basically became your life for a few years. Like I remember, this wasn't even very long ago, we're over here in downtown Brooklyn and you would be over at the courthouse while he was on trial. That was, that was when was, when was his trial? Well, he never went to trial, but some of his hitmen went to trial and some of the prescription pill people went to trial. So the hitmen went to trial actually in Manhattan in 2018. So that's, I had already several years into the reporting at that point and LaRue testified at length in that trial. So it was kind of like, the most we ever heard from Paul LaRue was several days of testimony at that trial where he was testifying against his guys who he had hired to kill people on his behalf, and then he flipped on them, and they all got sentenced to life. I hate to spoiler alert your entire book, which took you like five years, but LaRue is in jail. He, didn't, he does not make it out. And basically, as I recall from the book, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the book's great. Let's just plug the book. The book's called The Mastermind. If this sounds like... This story is as wild as any crypto story, but also involves like murders, people trying to set up oil ports in war zones. It's a it's a, it's an epic story. And it ends with him getting caught, which I don't think is like a huge surprise and that he was involved in like as many crim- criminal enterprises as one could possibly manage while still sleeping. Yeah. How he got caught was actually incredible. It's not that much of a spoiler to say he got caught because really the last third of the book is once he's in custody, what happens? Right. But the circumstances that led to his capture and everything that led up to it are kind of like the heart of the book. And he flipped almost immediately, flipped, I would say, almost aggressively, like became a more than helpful witness to the government. yes. uh, Setting up stings for former associates. And it's always been... Like in me and you just shooting the shit about this. Like, if you have a friend who's covering like a super criminal, it's great. You could like just like, be like what are you up to? It's like let's talk about this. You've always held 
that of all the money he made doing all of this crime, it does not seem like it was all seized. Like it seems like there is still outstanding money out there. And that's one of the theories about why he was so eager to cooperate with the government is that he believes at some point he will be released and that potentially there's a lot of money waiting for him somewhere. Yes. I mean, he certainly has a lot of money out there according to everyone on every side of his story, including his relatives and employees, including people at the DEA. Like, nobody says, oh, we got all the money. Yep. In fact, people at the DEA have basically said they're not even going to chase the money, I think, because it's too hard to get to and it'd be too much effort. So I know that he has trusts. He has a trust in the Virgin Islands. Like, I had a whistleblower inside of a essentially a bank investment firm in Hong Kong who kind of gave me some of the documents related to that. So he's got millions of dollars, I would say, at the least out there somewhere. Now, whether he can get to it that easily, and there's a question of when he gets out, he's not sentenced yet. So he'll be sentenced in August is is the scheduled date. So it could be five years, it could be 10 years, it could be 30 years. But yes, I think in a general sense, he's looking to get out. He's got money that he can probably access, according to everyone who knows anything. And he wants to set up shop again. That's, that's the generally held theory, uh, absent this this potential other <laughs> development. So you published the book. The book's amazing, gets amazing reviews. Then Craig writes, the trial starts or the papers start getting filed for. And this is the case between Craig Wright and the estate of Dave Kleiman, which I think is represented by his brother, Ira Kleiman. Yeah, I think it might be Kleiman, but I'm I'm not sure. Am I, am I mispronouncing I, his name? That, that's how it was said to me by someone involved Say it in again? the case. Clayman. Clayman. Okay. Dave Clayman and Ira Clayman. And basically, Ira Clayman is suing Craig Wright to get back a bunch of Bitcoin that he thinks that Craig Wright has that he uh, misappropriated from Dave Clayman after Dave Clayman's death. Yes. That's that's the subject of the suit. And millions of pages probably filed about this now over time. I have not parsed the entire uh, case. I don't know if, uh, how I've read much a lot of it. Of it now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry. To, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> but one of the, was it a footnote? Yeah, it was a footnote. So what happened was they had conducted a deposition with Craig Wright, asked him a bunch of questions. And then he had refused to answer certain questions in the deposition. And then subsequent to that, his lawyers basically filed a motion saying that he would answer those questions. And in fact, in the motion, he sort of did answer the questions if those answers remained sealed. That was the idea. And and the language was around there being either threats to Craig Wright's life or other people's lives and or national security implications in revealing these particular names so there were some names, more than one name. There was a name of a person that he had conducted a conference call with, with Dave Clayman. And then there was what seemed to be the names of people that he had helped the government catch in some capacity or another, either through his software he didn't created with Dave Clayman or through some other means. So a lot of it was blacked out. So you could kind of piece together what exactly they were talking about. And then there was a footnote that was, in fact redacted, but the redaction didn't go over to the second page. So the end of the footnote was there, and the end of that footnote contained a link to Paul LaRue's Wikipedia page, much of which is sourced in my book. 
and or my <laughs> the articles of the atavist in my book and the other of which was the end of a um a daily mail story about paul Leroux. so clearly paul Leroux's name came up and it's, that's it what started like a this lot whole of, thing a lot of secrets come out because of redaction errors <laughs> it is a kind of common thing. I mean, it wasn't the one that you usually get, which is that they use the sort of like PDF redaction tool and then someone just goes in and takes it off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, or just like copies and pastes the text underneath. That's my favorite one. This I've, was I've more... seen also a few of the people who do it. It's just not dark enough. <laughs> I love a good redaction error. Yeah. Okay. So there's a redaction error and the redaction error basically points directly at you. <laughs> because it's pointing to a Wikipedia page, which is based on your reporting. To 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 a large extent. I mean, there's a lot of reporting on Polaris, so I, I don't want to take full credit for the Wikipedia page. But, I mean, a lot of it is sourced to my reporting. And so I started hearing about it. You know, I got an email about it on a Sunday in May because it came up on either, I don't remember where it surfaced. I think it might have surfaced on 4chan originally. And then it was on Hacker News. And then it was on bitcoin.org or it was on the the main bitcoin forum like it was in three or four places and then people started emailing me and then people started dming me and saying you know what do you know about this and what's your theory and could this be true or just like have you seen this at first i was just like i want nothing i want nothing to do with this yeah because the thing i should back up and say is that this is not the first time that larue was connected to satoshi when i first published this series of articles in the atavist magazine in 2016 actually heard from people and there was some kind of hacker news forum kind of stuff where people said oh maybe he's satoshi kind of out there yeah in fact i should email back one guy emailed me like an elaborate theory which is kind of like matches the reporting that i've subsequently done but where he said he or she i can't remember said there's a lot of things that line up here you know i'm just throwing i'm just throwing it out there a lot of things line up here so I had looked into it for the book, and I had actually spent a pretty long time just trying to find anyone who mentioned it or any clue. I mean, there are lots of places where you could find something that would match up precisely. Like, for instance, Paul LaRue registered thousands and thousands of domains. He actually had his own domain registry that he created in the Philippines in order to run his prescription pill business so that no one could shut him down. He could just generate domains. And, you know, if there was some domain in there that matched something that Satoshi had registered, you know, there were ways in which I thought, okay, maybe this, and I just didn't find anything. And I wrote in the book that I did not find any connection. That is, And in the, in the footnote, it just says, like, I looked through everything and I didn't find anything. So I had basically felt like I had closed that door for myself. So having read the book, the minute you, like, I read the entire book without thinking of Satoshi or Bitcoin at all. But the minute you told me, hey, LaRue is in play, like the two things my mind zoomed to very, very quickly are the involvement that Paul LaRue had in the development of a very widely used encryption. Uh, what would you call it? An encryption tool? It's a, it's a disk encryption tool. It's a piece of software that that encrypts hard drives. Which is called TrueCrypt or E4M? Well, so Paul LaRue in the late 90s, he wrote his own piece of software that he authored himself called E4M, Encryption for the Masses, is what it stands for. There's no dispute that he was the person who wrote that. It was an open source piece of software. Then there was sort of convoluted back and forth that is too complex to go into. It's in the book in a shorter form, but essentially he got hired into a software firm. They were going to use E4M. There was a dispute over whether or not it was still open source. It was a threat of a lawsuit. And then he got fired 
And then TrueCrypt emerged a little bit later. And TrueCrypt explicitly is based on E4M. I mean, if you read the original announcement of TrueCrypt, it's like the successor to E4M. It uses E4M code. It credits Paul LaRue in TrueCrypt. Now, it's still an open question whether Paul LaRue himself was involved in the development of TrueCrypt. The developers there are anonymous. They stayed anonymous. There are theories about who they are, and there's some links to various people, but essentially they're anonymous. And TrueCrypt was one of the most widely used disk encryption tools up until, I mean, some of the Snowden documents contain information that the NSA was unable to break TrueCrypt. Snowden himself was a big advocate of TrueCrypt at the time. Until 2014, when the anonymous developers of TrueCrypt mysteriously sort of shut it down, or they post it on the website, they didn't shut it down, it's open source, but they post it on the website, don't use TrueCrypt anymore, it's not safe, which is itself a separate mystery. I want to read this book also. So the point of all of this is that the reason why Paul LaRue is a good candidate for Satoshi, I think the primary reason is that he actually wrote a piece of encryption software. Mm -hmm. He wrote it himself. He showed up on encryption forums and announced it. And the pattern very much follows what Satoshi did. And a lot of the people that get thrown out is, it might be Satoshi, you might not. Like, no one ever looks into, like, can this person code? Like, can this person... Occasionally, you'll see people asking, like, do they know C++ or not? And, like, if someone has one line on their resume about, you know, C++, they'll be like, okay. But the idea that someone would write the software for Bitcoin never having written open source software before, to me, is like a little bit ridiculous. Like, it wasn't someone's first try, you know? And several people have said this to me when I've interviewed them about it, too. Like, you don't just show up and and write software like that. So there has to be something in this person's background, or they hired someone, if it's a team or whatever, to create the software. And Paul LaRue explicitly did exactly that. And not only that... He did a few things that kind of like match up in this other way. One, I'll give one example, which is he wrote to some encry- people who had written previous encryption algorithms in the past, like SSL, and s- asked about crediting them in the software. And Adam Back, who's the person who I guess generally is believed, is the first person to ever hear from Satoshi and is cited in the Bitcoin white paper he got a very similar email from Satoshi, the very first email that sort of said, hey, I know about Hashcash, this thing you've created, and I, I want to know how to cite it in this thing that I'm doing. They, they have this similar vibe. This person was involved in open source software, kind of understood how these things worked. And so that's sort of what set me off again when I started looking into it, were these, there are these ways in which the stories align that kind of pull you into looking at at the evidence. I think that the idea of programming and code in general is so diverse now that people can kind of find like a background in a lot of people that you're like, oh, he did this. You know, uh, Clayman is an interesting example where I've always heard that Clayman was the programmer and Craig Wright was the um, front man, right? The hype man. Right. But when you actually look into Clayman's background, he'd done some like IT work. It, it doesn't exactly line up. Like, if, if the crime was taking over, like, a corporate computer network, maybe he would maybe have an expertise in that. But the very specific world of Bitcoin maps very closely to what you just described, this collaborative open source work where people are building on each other's work, citing each other. The interest in encryption is obviously, like, a big one. 
And I guess there's one other light bulb that immediately went off for me, which is this guy is creating open source software to solve his own problems. Right. Like he made encryption and also required encryption to stay out of jail. And so many of the um, situations that LaRue was finding himself in, needing to transfer millions of dollars to cartels, needing to set up infrastructure in countries like Somalia that have no, no or little banking system. These are all the kinds of problems Bitcoin kind of solves. Like you can kind of think of a guy who's having these money problems. And this is a person who, when he was caught, people were like tearing open the like walls of his safe houses because he had been burying gold in the walls. Yeah. Anyone who's putting gold inside their walls can see a use case for Bitcoin. It was actually under the hot tub. That was the primary location where the gold had been. One one stash of gold. I mean, people believe there's still stashes of gold all over the place because he operated. I mean, they confiscated tens of millions of dollars in gold bars from him in Hong Kong. And he had he had much more than that in the Philippines, so his employees say. So, yeah, I think philosophically, there's the sort of technical skill aspect. Did he yeah. have the skills to do it? And I think there's a very good case to be made that he did. And not only that he did, but that the way he deployed those skills sort of matches up with the Satoshi kind of style. Then there's the the more philosophical outlook or the motives, you might want to say, for creating it. And there's sort of two ways that works. One is that when he was writing E4M, the thing that he was doing as his day job was programming for banks. He was doing swift international transfer systems for big international banks, Dutch banks, Australian banks. And he had a lot of problems with the banking system. Like even before all of the criminal stuff, I have online posts of him complaining about the banking system. Yeah. So, and it's fair to say that LaRue is a libertarian in the most extreme, like, I take you out in my boat and shoot you in international waters form of libertarianism. <laughs> yes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. He, The law unto himself uh, yeah. in the most extreme way. And also in the, in the sort of release notes for E4M, I mean, he talks about the necessity for encryption and government surveillance and, you know, classic kind of cypherpunk kind of stuff. But at the same time, the philosophy, I think, overall makes sense. But then specifically by 2008, when the Bitcoin white paper came out, I mean, LaRue was involved in, first of all, an online pharmaceutical network that always had trouble with payments because they had credit card processors who would drop them if they believed that what they were doing is illegal. So they were always having to shift credit card processors. And then he had large amounts of money that he was trying to transfer all over the world and basically launder in different ways. And so he was doing it through Hong Kong and he would have trouble with the banks there and he was doing it through a bank in Singapore. And he talked about, I need to create my own bank at one point, you know, in Manila. And I need my own bank in order to deal with all this money. And he mentioned to people, so this is when I started looking back into this, I contacted some of the people who'd worked for him and sort of re-asked them, people who had not asked before about Bitcoin. And one of them said, yeah, he talked about digital currencies in 2007 and 2008. And another one said, yeah, around that time, he said, you know, the only way to really be rich is to have your own currency. I mean, he would kind of compared it to North Korea, like essentially having a currency that was like disconnected from the rest of the world and you could just mint it. So there are, I think, reasons why it would make sense. Now, I don't know how f- quickly you want to get into the skeptical side of Paul LaRue, but I mean, there's an answer to all of those things too, which is how would you expect to create Bitcoin and have it solve these problems in any kind of 
time horizon. You know, it would be a long time horizon for it to get the level of adoption that would enable you to actually solve the problems we're talking about Paul Leroux needing to solve. So I view it more as, I mean, he, in an intellectual sense, wanted to solve these problems. I mean, he he talked about them early on, like when he launched his encryption software, he just cared about that. It wasn't yep. that, he wasn't actually a criminal at that time. He was just interested in encryption. Later, he was using encryption to, to protect himself. But at the time he did E4M, he was just like a young coder who was wanted to add something to the community and saw a lane to do it. Before we get to the skeptical stuff, though, LaRue was a moonshot kind of person. I mean, this is a person who sent a bunch of his subordinates to a war-torn country and said, like, figure out how to build an oil refinery there. Well, it started as a tuna tuna fishing operation. Sorry, it's a tuna a tuna fishing operation that became an oil refinery they, operation. They're going to get into oil, and then maybe the whole time he just wanted to set up a base of operations to distribute pharmaceuticals, and he wanted to grow drugs there. That was part of it. They set up greenhouses, and then he wanted to kidnap tourists, and then he wanted to conduct a coup in the Seychelles. He had all he had a lot of plans. He's he's not he big a, plans. He's not above taking a hey, this is probably not going to work, but in 10 years, it could make me very rich kind oh, of sure. outlook. I mean, he was developing missile guidance software to sell to the Iranian government. He had sold an explosives formula to the Iranian government. He was trying to sell them this missile guidance software that he was developing in the Philippines. He also had programmers that he would import from Eastern Europe, including C++ programmers they were often advertising for, to do all sorts of things. They were building drones... Underwater drones, aerial drones. I mean, they just had projects, you know. He just had all, all roads, these projects. All roads lead back to Romania always. <laughs> the story is going to end in Romania. I mean, he had a he had a kind of operation in Romania. It was just programmers who did a lot of the the general IT stuff, but then these big projects, he would bring them to the Philippines and basically set them up in a kind of like a warehouse and have them build software for him. And that too it's not entirely clear to me how you involve multiple people in Bitcoin, but like the idea of, as you say, being someone who launches big, grandiose projects without necessarily seeing like the short term return, but seeing a huge long term return, that is Paul LaRue. Well, there's another point that, again, this is all very anecdotally, just like none of this is investment advice, none of this is uh, uh, factual uh, accusations, but. LaRue kind of had a history of finding trusted lieutenants, giving them big, big projects and being like, hey, you figure it out. Like, I'm I'm going to step back here. Like, that was sort of how the, the stuff with the tuna fishing worked. And so the history, like, me and you both were reading back through the Satoshi email and um, forum history. And this is basically what happens with Gavin Andreessen at a certain point. At a certain point, Satoshi's like, hey, Gavin Andreessen, you Bitcoin. And I don't know, it just struck me, like you were saying that Bitcoin's a like a mega long shot. But for Bitcoin to work in the way that Paul LaRue needed it to work, all it needed was to have like a stable network where people could do transactions. Like, for the kinds of business that he wanted to do, it wouldn't matter if Bitcoin was worth one cent, one dollar, or a million dollars. It would still allow you to transfer value. The liquidity would have been pretty bad for, like, getting out of a Coke deal. But as soon as Bitcoin was trading on exchanges, which was happening within the first few years, I think, it would have become a useful tool for someone who was 
money laundering, basically. This is the use case I talk about on the show for Monero. I think Monero is probably like a better project for uh, Paul to have come up with. But again, Monero would have never existed unless Bitcoin had existed previously. So he did, in the same way as U4M, set forth a movement that would greatly benefit a LaRue type down the line. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Although, again, I I personally feel like that particular motive, it seems to me more likely if we, let's take it for a second, that Paul LaRue did, you know, is Satoshi. Yeah. I would think the motivation would be more closer to E4M, where he just wanted to create something that the world needed and set mm-hmm. forth. Now, he had a particular insight into why the world needed that and belief about governments and a feeling about his money being vulnerable all the time. So I think those things would have gone into creating it, but I don't think he necessarily would have seen immediate value in doing it. I mean, partly because none of his websites ever took Bitcoin. I mean, right. that it was a little bit early for them to do so, but you would think if he was Satoshi, one of the first things he would do would be like, I have all these websites that I'm selling drugs on. Maybe I should use Bitcoin there. And it would be, you know, and he never did. So, although that is terrible, like OPSEC for a former cypherpunk. <laughs> well, you know? <laughs> but that's, this is where you get into like the philosophy of considering who Satoshi is, right. which is that once you're at the level of evidence where you're saying, oh, he must have done that on purpose to obscure his identity, or she must have done that on purpose to obscure her identity, whoever Satoshi is, then you're in the realm of, it's, it's, it's beyond speculation. It's sort of like, it's like an inverse evidence. It's because you can take anything and say, oh, well, that was something he used to disguise his identity. And so I tried to stay away from those types of, you know, quote unquote, proofs and stick to the things that factually lined up between Luru and Satoshi. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest stumbling block in most of the people who I think are like the top 10 suspected to be Satoshis, which are the usual suspects, the uh, Hal Finneys of the world, is if Hal Finney is Satoshi, Hal Finney was exchanging emails with himself. Which again, a genius person might do, but it gets into those unknowable unknowables where it's 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 kind of akin to the the document forgery stuff we're talking about before which is how far would someone go to keep this fiction alive when i look at someone like craig wright i reject him as a satoshi for many many reasons but one of them is how sloppy he is he just makes lots of unforced errors if you if you find old interviews with craig wright you can hear him talking about when he first heard about bitcoin which is either a very sloppy slip-up, or Craig Wright is not Satoshi. Paul LaRue is a pretty methodical person who did not make a lot of dumb errors. He was able to stay doing what he did for a pretty long time because he was pretty good at it and pretty paranoid and pretty careful. Yeah, and the, and the DEA started tracking him in 2007, did not catch him until 2012. And part of that was, for years, he created... Layers. I mean, when he first started his pharmaceutical business, I'm not even sure that he thought it was illegal. Yeah. And there were some open questions about whether it was illegal at that time. And so he, he designed it. it to be kind of gray legal. Like they didn't sell like opiates. They sold like semi things. They were, were not controlled of, substances. Yeah, not so controlled. Things like tramadol, which they'll was, fuck you up. Yeah, they're addictive painkillers, but they were not on the control. They are now, but they partly because of Paul LaRue, but they were not on the controlled substances list. So, th- so it was a gray area business, let's say. And so his name was actually on some of the original servers. 
in Canada that they you know they would rent server space and sometimes his name would be on there. That's how they actually got onto him to begin with. But then over time, he realized that they were onto him and he started creating layers around him, both like dozens and dozens of shell companies, names, he called them, uh, what did he call them? Dummies. So he would have people that he would just get some person from Zimbabwe that he would hire to just like fly to Hong Kong and open 10 companies with their own ID. And they had no idea what they were doing. So he would do things like that. He also, of course, used encryption. So he developed his own encrypted servers. He had his own encrypted email that could not be accessed by subpoena. He was, I mean, by search warrant, he was running it. Even if you could get it, you wouldn't be able to unencrypt it. So he was schooled in the way of hiding your identity. He had multiple passports including a diplomatic passport, which is one of the things that crops up a lot in the LaRue-Satoshi comparison. This is like one of the pieces of All right, let's, know, evidence. Let's, dude, you got to explain that one. Because it's. All, I, I tried to explain it to Jay, and I like. I was like, his name was <laughs> Sloshy. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely, I've, I've now put it in front of various Bitcoin people, and some of them have said, wow, that's really interesting. And other ones are like, that is the most ridiculous piece of evidence I've ever heard. So... Paul LaRue for many years wanted to obtain a diplomatic passport because he believed that it would help him have immunity against prosecution. He knew he was being chased by law enforcement from different parts of the world. He was in the Philippines. He had bribed his way to being very well protected in the Philippines, but he was still worried that they could get him. So essentially, he sent some relatives into the Democratic Republic of Congo to get a diplomatic passport. It is a real diplomatic passport that they bribed, they went in with $100,000 strapped to their persons, they bribed an official, they got this passport. And this passport, it surfaces in all the... The image of this passport is one that I got that someone sent me very, very early on in my reporting. And the name on it is Paul... His name is Paul Calder LaRue. The name is Paul Calder LaRue Solochi. S-O-L-O-T-S-H-I. And so... If you just look at it, it looks like Satoshi. Like, your first glance, you think, oh, wow, it's a, it's a Satoshi. And actually, Solochi is a name that, as far as I can tell, is only used in the Congo. And I asked the person who got the passport. So the original theory, back in 2016, when I was looking into this, someone had said, look, he's got this passport. And the original theory was, oh, if maybe this is just a version of Satoshi, like he used the same name on this passport. Yep. And I, So I went to the person who got the passport, and they said, no, no, no. That didn't come from LaRue. The official who made the passport, the corrupt official who made the passport said, basically, I got to add a Congolese name on this to make it sound more real. And that person picked that. So I had originally sort of dismissed it as, okay, it's just a coincidence. They sound kind of similar. It's bullshit. But then if you look at the dates, there's actually another theory that you can concoct, which is that the passport was issued in early August 2008. I checked with Adam Beck who received the first email from Satoshi, and he received that email on, like, August 20th, 2008. So by this scheme, it's possible that LaRue got his prized diplomatic passport, was in the middle of being about to concoct an identity in order to contact people about the Bitcoin paper he wanted to release, and he just kind of, like, futzed with Solochi, made it Satoshi, and then thought, that sounds Japanese, now I'm going to add Nakamoto. That's that. That would be the theory of the connection between those names. I'm going to rank that one as inconclusive, <laughs> but there are other weird, real life provable overlaps. Calvin Ayer, who is a, the founder of Bodog, 
who is now an associate of Craig Wright, at the time was on the run from, I think he was just on the Interpol. I don't know who was. He was indicted in the U.S., uh, which eventually a lot of those charges just were dismissed. And so he got out from under that. But for a while, he was was under indictment in the U.S. and sort of on the run, or he he was like trying to avoid uh, the U.S. authorities for sure for, for some period. I mean, that's one of the weird ones. The problem is every time you're ready to dismiss the theory that Paul Rue could be Satoshi, which I think there are reasons to dismiss it, there's some little coincidence that's just weird. And one of the weird ones is Calvin Ayer. So way back before any of this Craig Wright stuff, before Calvin Ayer's involvement and all this, that, and the other, one of LaRue's relatives, who was a good source of mine, had he kept telling me back in 2016, Paul had some connection with Calvin Ayer. That's what he told me. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't really even pursue it. I mean, LaRue had connections with all sorts of people. And also, he, LaRue had pursued online gambling yeah. as a vocation. Like he originally, before pharmaceuticals, he wanted to get into online gambling. In 2008, he had a company he was trying to start in Costa Rica called The Betting Machine, I think it was called where he was trying to get back into online gambling. He had written online gambling software, in fact, um, which I have talked to people who had seen it and said it was really sophisticated. So in 2016, LaRue's cousin is telling me he knows Calvin Ayer, and he had said he remembered that LaRue told him he was trying to get a passport for Calvin Ayer. Maybe that makes sense. Calvin Ayer was trying to get a diplomatic passport like like LaRue. Now, I contacted Calvin Ayer through his, he wouldn't talk, but through his spokesperson, he's basically like, I've never heard of this person before a few weeks ago. Like, I've never heard of Paul LaRue. So he denies it ever knowing him. But it's interesting to me that that surfaced for me before any of this. It's, it's not a product of this Satoshi thing. It's actually something I was told before. So just like triangulating, having read your book, LaRue was a big, big man in Philippines, in the Philippines. Yes. He he moved weight. Yes. He was deep in the government, deep in the police force, kind of knew all of the the criminal money-moving shit that was happening. Paid the call people. center business. Yeah. Like all of this sort of gray area to black market businesses, he had ties to through his people or himself. Big, big, a lot of people on his payroll. Lot yes. A lot of people um, making money there. We have a news article from the same time period of air coming to Philippines, people in the Philippines saying he's setting up a gambling center here, whatever. The idea that Paul LaRue, like another heavily tanned man who with a criminal past who is trying to get into gaming. Paul's actually kind of pasty. But oh, really? Honest. <laughs> I always imagine him like kind of well-cooked. <laughs> These two guys, these people who had similar interests, it just seems crazy like that LaRue would have not at least known that he was there and had the opportunity to meet him if he'd wanted to. And, sure. And there's other things that I didn't know about that your reporting actually opened up to me, such as that there's a poker client in the very first build of Bitcoin. That's something I've never really heard reported on. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's kind of like just the front end, it, it looks like. And I talked to a few people about it and sort of verified that it was... It's a real thing because it, it actually, at first I wasn't sure that it was a real thing. I had to look, like I looked in several books I have about the origins of Bitcoin. There's no like poker line in the glossary. Poker yeah. is not mentioned. It gets commented out of the software and then it sort of disappears pretty quickly. It's like pre the first public release maybe even. I'm 
I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember exactly what version it is, but it's before other developers were involved, essentially. Right. So it's it's like pure Satoshi code, I think. Yeah, and, and so, it could be something that Satoshi had been working on in parallel to Bitcoin and decided to like include in Bitcoin because he saw them being used. Yeah, and it makes sense uh, that it would be a place yeah. where you would end up using Bitcoin. And LaRue had written poker software, online casino software. So... That too is sort of like there's other ways to explain it, you know. Yeah. And you could say anybody who was writing Bitcoin software would think, okay, what are the use cases for this? Ah, online gambling. Maybe I'll do a little online gambling thing, put a little code in there, and then eventually they said, okay, well, we don't want there to be that as part of the use cases are not part of Bitcoin software itself. We expect those there to be a universe of those who employ it. So maybe the philosophy just changed, but it does add sort of to the ledger and I literally have a spreadsheet that's like pro and con <laughs> Satoshi LaRue Satoshi there's a lot of things on that ledger including little things like in I've read all of Satoshi's posts and all of the writings emails and everything else you know and it'll say things like you know now at the point where we've gotten encryption for the masses it's time to turn to digital currency essentially is what he's and he uses this phrase encryption for the masses which is it's literally the name of Paul LaRue's software that he created. So there's a lot of little things like that. I didn't even put them all in the Wired piece because they're so circumstantial. They can be explained away by coincidence. You can say, encryption for the masses is a term. The reason that Paul named his software that is that there are other people who use that term. That is a common term. So you can get down this hole where you're lining up evidence, as I did end up down this hole lining up evidence, that is potentially all explained away by coincidence. I was just surprised that each time you gave me a little piece of evidence like that, it tied into some other piece of evidence. Sometimes one piece of evidence was on the LaRue side and the other piece of evidence was on the Satoshi side, such as you bring up that he wanted to get into gaming in Costa Rica. First thing I thought of when I heard gaming in Costa Rica is Liberty Reserve. Liberty Reserve is a digital currency that predates uh, Bitcoin. It's centralized. Uh, it eventually was shut down. I believe the founder, Arthur Budovsky, is still in prison. Mm -hmm. He was raided by the Costa Rican authorities. But a lot of the guys who ran early Bitcoin exchanges, like the Quadriga people, they were involved in Liberty Reserve dealing. If people wanted to do criminal stuff like gaming or money laundering before Bitcoin, a lot of people used Liberty Reserve. They had over one million accounts. So you bring this up. And then you're like, oh, Satoshi mentions Liberty Reserve. And there's a forum post in which Satoshi is talking about the interoperability of Bitcoin and Liberty Reserve, because Liberty Reserve has not gotten shut down yet, and saying like, oh, you'll be able to like trade between the two of them, or maybe we should include a way where you can like use both. So again, I don't think any of this is like nails in the coffin, nor is it like journalistic proof. Maybe what we're doing is starting to describe a different picture of what kind of a person Satoshi could have been, even if it wasn't Paul LaRue, like a person who was involved in international crime and all of the computer code necessary to stay secretive while doing it. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, certainly the the thing we haven't talked about is sort of the timeline, which... Yeah, I wanted to get into that. To answer the question, who is Satoshi, presuming this person has not come forward and is not Craig Wright, let's just say for the sake of argument, you, you have to figure out why this person chose to disappear, and you have to figure out why they haven't moved any of the original mined Bitcoin, estimated to be roughly a million. 
And Paul LaRue fits that very well because there are very good reasons why he would disappear from actively being involved in Bitcoin, both because it was starting to draw the attention of the wider world in a way that would make him uncomfortable. And Satoshi specifically says he does not like the attention that WikiLeaks using Bitcoin brought to it in 2010. Yeah. And then in 2011, Satoshi disappeared from emailing anyone after Gavin Andreessen said that he was going to give a talk at the CIA. And you could argue there that may or may not be the actual reason, but there's if you line it up, it sort of makes some sense. And Paul LaRue would certainly not want the attention. I mean, he already had the attention of intelligence agencies around the world. So he he would not want to go anywhere near that. And you could see him just being like, I am turning all this off. You could also explain why none of the original mined Bitcoins have moved, which is that Paul Roos arrested in 2012. Yeah. In September 2012, that amount of Bitcoins was worth in the tens of millions of dollars, low tens, like I think I calculated at $12 million or something. It's not a lot of money for him and also hard to get liquidity, even if it was a lot of money for him at that time. So after September 2012, he would not have been able to access and sell it Maybe he he did have access to computers sometimes, so you could say maybe he would have, but not without giving himself away. So it makes sense that this person could be in prison. So to your to your wider point, I think the person could be dead, the person could not care at all about money, or the person could be in prison. Those seem like the three possibilities. Well, and it's also possible that this person who the Satoshi has other stashes of Bitcoin, like. I like I like LaRue because LaRue never dipped anywhere near enough zero in his bank account that he would have needed to cash out his Bitcoin. I mean, LaRue is rich many times over from many things. He's probably still making money without even realizing it. There's probably some coke operation that the boat's still going, <laughs> you know? But he wouldn't have needed the cash per se. And if he did need the cash, I think based on his general pattern of like stashing gold bars all over the world, he probably would have stashed. Like, we don't know that that 980,000 mined Bitcoin that's at, you know, that is linked to Satoshi is Satoshi's only Bitcoin. Anyone who was around in early Bitcoin could have easily created multiple stashes, potentially under multiple names, different places and whatnot. You took this question to a lot of the early Bitcoin famous the uh, the the literal ogs of bitcoin and basically showed them what you had and said what what do you think well what was the, what were the reactions like so i i took it to the ones who would still talk there have been so many like who is satoshi questions that some of them just refused to talk about <laughs> right. it but some of them were still game are they and, still doing that like that's the stupidest question you could ask um thing. sometimes not 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 dismissively i would say they were they actually were pretty generous the people that i talked to in terms of being game to listen to some of what i had and say you know a lot of them just said i don't think you're going to figure it out but like a breaking bad satoshi that sounds interesting. They sort of thought, well, this is more fun than many of the other theories that people have had. And certainly no one that I talked to could offer any piece of evidence that would disprove that LaRue could be Satoshi. And in fact, the closest anyone came to any sort of, it's not him, was just saying, well, I read your book and it sounds like he's he was really busy. And yep. like, how would he have time to do it? Which I think in a way, is kind of like an argument that disproves itself because, of course, when I started looking into him, I thought, 
oh, there's no way. There were encryption experts who said, there's no way he wrote E4M when I started. It's not the same Paul Root, not the criminal Paul Root. There's no chance it's him. And it was him. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's no way he's the guy who was involved in Somalia. How would he have time to be involved in Somalia? He's doing all these other things. He's clearly a person who had many operations running at once. He barely slept. He worked all the time. He could contact people at any hour of the day. There's no reason to believe in my mind that he just didn't have time to do it. Well, he and, didn't do anything else. And Satoshi's actual work on Bitcoin is over a pretty limited period of time. It's not like Satoshi ran Bitcoin from when he thought of it till now. It was like an intense burst of activity, and then he passed it off to other people who did a lot of, like, while I don't think Hal Finney or Adam Back is Satoshi, they did a lot of work that was necessary for Bitcoin to take off. When you actually look at the number of hours you would have thought that Satoshi put into Bitcoin, it's not unreasonable. It's like a very, very serious hobby. Yeah, and writing the software, I mean, who knows how long he spent prior to 2008 writing it. So none of them sort of could offer anything. Now, I did get Gregory Maxwell agreed to do a code comparison between E4M, the source code of which is still available, and the original Bitcoin code. Maxwell is the CEO of Blockstream, maybe the former CEO of I think of he's the former CEO now. Yeah. He's done a lot of Bitcoin development. Yeah. Now, of course, in all of these things, there's a whole world of like people fighting with each other that I doesn't really interest me. And so there will be people out there who are like, Gregory Maxwell is this or that. Of course. But he, to my mind, is a respected developer. He worked on the Bitcoin core software for a long time. Blockstream, I think he may have not be this, this co-CEO, but he was a founder in any yeah. case. So he did a code comparison and he found some things that stylistically did not line up or in the sense that he basically concluded this could be written by the same person their style would have had to evolve they're 10 years apart so it makes sense that their style would have evolved over 10 years yeah but my hairline has evolved over the same <laughs> span of time but it's not conclusive one way or the other yeah so he sort of left it saying yeah it could be him i see some flaws in lining the two up and i kind of outlined a couple of them in the wired article but they were pretty technical that was kind of what most people said that I talked to. They were like, sure, it could be him. But the problem, which was highlighted in something Gregory Maxwell said to me, where I eventually landed is the problem with all of this, which is the problem with most of the Satoshi speculation, is that the idea that there is evidence that lines up that he could be Satoshi does not in any way show that he is. Like, yeah. that is not proof that he is Satoshi. And... You could look forever for that evidence. And if he's not Satoshi, you'd never find it. But you'd keep lining up things that match up. And so it's kind of an endless process that in the end, I would certainly say if you lined up the candidates that have been out there, I would probably bet on Paul LaRue. That's how I feel too. But I wouldn't bet more than one, one or 2% chance of it being true, even though I think he's the market leader. <laughs> right. Because the universe of possible candidates is unknown. Yeah. That's the problem with all this speculation. Like someone wrote an article saying maybe Neil Stevenson is, is Satoshi. And it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also, why not? You know, there are plenty of reasons why not, which is like Satoshi was probably a programmer and Neil Stevenson's a brilliant writer. Well, I'll give you another one. I've, we've talked on the show about how the plot of Cryptonomicon prefigures a lot of Bitcoin. That's because Neil Stevenson was hanging out on cypherpunk mailing lists, 
where Satoshi was probably hanging out. And Satoshi probably read Cryptonomicon. <laughs> He's a dork. <laughs> Every dork who was born in 1970 and passed read Cryptonomicon. Like you're describing an archetype that literally encompasses like everyone who got into like open source programming. They all read Cryptonomicon. That's the, yes. And that's the problem, which is that Paul Aru has the skills, he has the motivation, the timeline lines up, there's some weird connections that line up. So all of that exists, but without knowing how many possible C++ encryption-minded programmers who have a similar philosophy there are out there, it's almost meaningless to say that. Like, if there are 150,000 of them, then so what? If there are 10 people who actually fit that, then wow, at best you've got a 10% shot at it. So I think where I landed was sort of looking at the the kind of logical fallacy of trying to prove something in this way. Beyond the logical fallacy, which I agree with, there's one other asterisk I put on Paul LaRue that I think I would put on all of those people who are the top 10 betting favorites if there was someone who knew as much about them as you know about LaRue. You know about as much about LaRue as a person can possibly know about another person. You've spent five plus years, no, but what, yeah, five, 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 year, five, years. five years of your life dedicated to understanding Paul LaRue. You've talked to his relatives. You have chat transcripts. You've talked to his employees. And this is in a computer era where it's harder to hide things because they're sitting on a server somewhere. In all of that, not one slip up, not one email where he's like, Bitcoin is pretty cool. Not one email where he's like, hey, saying, hey, I have a new programming project for you, Romanian hacker. You know, And these are literally people he was in touch with who you've been in touch with. Oh, yeah. And not even that, but not even a slip up. He never even used GMX, the, the mail server that Satoshi uses, yeah. the mail service. Never used it. At all. And I have a lot of Paul LaRue email, all yep. these different emails that he used. Has a totally different email methodology, which, again, if we're getting into people came into Craig Wright's server in the middle of the night and changed things around, that could be true. He could have been perfect. But the main quality of Satoshi that I've always noticed was that he didn't screw up. Like the way these people get caught in the Silk Road or whatever, it's early on before you knew it was going to be a thing, you screwed up and post it on a forum with your real email address instead of the fake email address, whatever. There's in, a, in the years of software development, there's just thousands of opportunities to make a small mistake. And Paul Leroux is the mastermind. He, he's not a mistake-prone person. Although he did, I mean, he clearly made at least one enormous mistake, which is he got lured into a trap and was arrested by the DEA. So yeah. his... His record is not 100%. It's not 100%. And I just feel like that you've acquired so much of the Paul LaRue archive that I would expect there to be a smoking gun. If I could have access to all the other candidates in as much detail as you've created around Paul LaRue, I would feel more comfortable saying it's them or it's not them. The case you've made for LaRue is incredibly compelling. And I also agree with your general logical fallacy case. But the reason I probably still in my heart conclude that it's not him is I think you would have found the clue 
Like, I think there would have been a clue somewhere in here. I'd like to think so. That's that's what set me off on spending the last month looking into it again, <laughs> was sort of the sheer embarrassment yeah. that would come from the fact that he, if he was Satoshi, and I had not found that clue, because I have hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. I have all of his companies. I have emails. I have chat transcripts. And there's nothing even that just pops up as a tiny connection, you know, like... The original Bitcoin website was registered through this thing called Anonymous Speech, which was a, it was like a domain reseller. And it's just, there's no connection to that anywhere in thousands and thousands of domain-related yep. pieces of data that I have. And I agree with you. I feel like you can always say, well, that's the whole point. He was being perfect. He was, yep. used, only use that email once for Satoshi. Don't use it for anything else. Only use that domain registry once. That's good you know, OPSEC, as you would say today. And clearly Satoshi was someone who could do that. But the amount of information that I have on Paul Leroux, it just would be very surprising to me that no one ever came across it, ever. So have you ever talked to Paul Leroux? No, I haven't. I've seen him testify on a number of occasions. I mean, he was held in extreme secrecy for a long time because yeah. he was part of sting operations that the DEA was employing against his, his uh, former henchmen. So I've never talked to him. He's never spoken outside of his testimony, which is very extensive. So he, he talked about a lot of things in there, partly because he hasn't been sentenced. So his cooperation is relevant to his sentencing, and he would be, frankly, a fool to mess that up by talking publicly at this point. He's a month away from sentencing. So I've never even gotten a response from his lawyer in terms of requests to talk to him. So to bring this whole thing full circle, how did Paul LaRue end up in Craig Wright's court case well that's that's a mystery i mean i've just written a long story about it and i feel like that's an outstanding mystery that i'm i'm debating whether to try and solve i, I can give you the possible theories oh, yeah. so one theory would be that craig wright knew paul larue possibly connected to online gambling circles because craig wright was involved in online gaming yep. software and to a certain extent. He's also turned heel now and say that he that he is Satoshi, but he like disavows Bitcoin because it's being used for all this vice. Yes, he's 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 anti anti vice now. But uh <laughs> but so the theory would be they did know each other. Somehow Craig Wright was involved in maybe going to the authorities about him, talking to the authorities about I know he wasn't involved in setting him up. So yep. if that's the claim, that's just false because I know how he was set up. I yeah. know the D agents who tracked Paul LaRue for five years. Yeah. I asked them if they ever heard of Craig Wright, any type of software invented by Craig Wright, Dave Clayman, any of that stuff. They're all like, no, this, there's nothing there. So if that's the claim, it's not true. But you also know what Craig Wright was up to during that same time period. Like there's like a London Review of Books article that's like showing his movements. He was not out like at night helping people catch criminals during that time. Well, yeah, but that was a little later. Oh, the, that was the after? The thing was, was like 2014, 2015, oh, okay, okay, okay. I think. But yes, in that, I, th I I don't believe that there is that that connection as it sort of implies in there. But I think it's possible that they knew each other. And maybe even Calvin Era was involved in the three yep. of them knowing each other. And there's some reason why that is connected to Bitcoin. There's also the possibility that they knew each other and has absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin, which frankly... If you're going to believe the filing, the 
if the filing says it has nothing to do with Bitcoin. So it's not clear to me why you would believe Craig Wright that he knew Paul LaRue or helped Paul LaRue get arrested or anything else, but then disbelieve him that it's connected to Bitcoin. You know what I yep. mean? Like, why not just believe both at that point? And then there's a the possibility that they never knew each other, that Craig Wright has somehow put forth this as a way to, I don't know what, float another theory. Maybe the thing was unredacted on purpose. Like, you can read every kind of crazy theory about it these days. But... I think either they knew each other and it had something to do with Bitcoin, either they knew each other and it had nothing to do with Bitcoin, or they never knew each other. And this is something that's weirdly gotten inserted into the lawsuit, maybe based on fraudulent documents. I mean, one of the things that's mysterious is the opposition lawyers asked him this question that he refused to answer. So clearly somewhere in their discovery, they found the name Paul LaRue. That seems implied to me. So it's in there somewhere. How it got in there... Maybe some hackers broke in in the night and put it in there. <laughs> That's That may be waiting for more documents to come out in the lawsuit. Well, I'll tell you my unsubstantiated theories on the matter, <laughs> which these predate the LaRue is Satoshi thing. In fact, they were the first thing I think me and you talked about when you were like, hey, I woke up to some weird news. Uh, Aaron, please tell me about cryptocurrency. I'm... My inbox is flooded with I was, questions about uh, it. Actually, I had never thought about it. Your book publisher must really hope that LaRue is Satoshi. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. If you could append, we'd just change the uh, subtitle to, like, the the inventor of Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> Satoshi. It would be great for sales. mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> um, my original thought was, okay, so cr- I followed Craig Wright pretty closely because I enjoy entertainment. And there's two things that Craig Wright has been pushing on really hard for, like, the last six months to a year. One is, you can't prove I'm not Satoshi. Continually phrased that way. Not I am, but I am provably as much Satoshi as anyone else could claim. Like, he's doing it in this weird linguistic way. And this is around him trying to get patents for various blockchain-y Bitcoin elements. It's never fully elaborated. It's always based on his research I don't know about you. I've never actually encountered any of like what Craig Wright's research is or what what's going on there. I know that Craig Wright is widely believed to have almost no programming talent. So whatever he research he's doing is just like it's, I'm going to let you theorize on that. I'm going to and he's also um, joined forces with Calvin Air pretty publicly. That's they're, definitely true. And Chain BSV. Yeah, the they're they have business connections. They're both pushing BSV, which is their fork of a fork that basically is just them at this point. Like they're like the last mariachi band playing the BSV. Although BSV is like wildly up this year. So go figure. So my thought was always somehow Craig Wright knows who Satoshi is maybe through air and knows Satoshi can't come forward. And in a game theory situation in which a person can never reveal themselves. You can say you're that person and no one can ever prove you're wrong because to prove them wrong, you would have to show that someone else is Satoshi and that maybe, you know, the air thing cuts every which way because early gambling is just like in bed with Bitcoin. There's a million different connections. But so whether it's LaRue or it's someone else from this criminal gambling vice world, Somehow Air knows who they are, and they're either dead, they're in jail, they can't come forward, and he and Wright have a plan to legally assert that Wright is the inventor of Bitcoin to gain some sort of a patent advantage or create some value out of that. 
That all kind of makes sense to me. Like, there's a bunch of things that Wright has been doing towards that end, like saying that he started Bitcoin, but then it got full of people who were using it for crime and child porn, so he left. Just totally discordant with like the actual his actual history with Bitcoin. But it's all making this case. It's almost like he knows, and this is crazy, I'm just spitballing here, but it's almost like he knows that the solution of who Satoshi is is a criminal. And therefore they're creating an alternate theory that they invented it as like crime stoppers. And I do think people are more comfortable. Like, why do people gravitate towards the idea that like Satoshi is like an American math professor? Because that's a that's what people want, right? Mm -hmm. That would be okay. Like if Satoshi turns out to be like living in Northampton and he's been leading the quiet life, that would be okay for Bitcoin. If it turns out that it's a international criminal mastermind. I don't think that's very good for Bitcoin prices. And there's a lot of powerful interests holding a lot of Bitcoin who stand to gain or lose a fortune based on something like that. Well, that I'm gonna. I just want to make clear that's the Aaron Lambert. Theory. That's the Aaron Lambert theory. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I would only respond to that by saying I don't know how if it were somehow proven it was Paul Rue, like what that would even do, if anything, to yeah. the Bitcoin price at this point. I mean, it's so divorced. And this is what people, you know, say, what who say, like, who cares who Satoshi is? I mean, it is, I think it's inherently interesting who Satoshi is, whether it would affect the Bitcoin price if the you just knew who the person was. There's so much, there's so many candidates, like, how would you even prove it? I mean, I talked to, I talked to Laszlo, I'm going to butcher his last name, so I'm not even going to say it, but Laszlo, who's like... Laszlo, the guy who bought the Bitcoin pizza. Yeah, that's what he's most kind of famous for, but I didn't even talk to him about that, but I was talking to him about his correspondence with Satoshi because he did a lot of early development. And one of the things he said to me, which is in the Wired piece, which was, would anyone believe anyone at this point? Like, Satoshi's like Jesus. He'll come back to Earth and people will be like, no, it's not you. Yeah. And it's like religion. Yeah. And so I'm not sure it would even move the price. The good news is... Paul LaRue was involved in this online pharmaceutical network and basically the whole thing was ended up being dismantled and people went to prison for it, including him. But telemedicine, the thing that Paul LaRue was doing is a huge, huge multi-billion dollar business almost in exactly the way he was doing it. So I feel like that offers a lesson for Bitcoin that even if it was Paul LaRue or a similar master criminal, that it's possible for the idea to survive the creation by a potentially horrible person. I, th- I think that was ultimately a bullish take there at the end. So I like <laughs> it. We got to end on that one. Thank you so much. Uh, we got to tape an intro for our other podcast. Evan and I host a podcast together. It's called the long form podcast. Check that out. If uh, you like the journalism uh, side of things more than the, uh, uh, unsubstantiated theories about who Satoshi is. Well, I hope uh, on the one hand, I hope that I can come back on, on coin talk on the other hand i hope that i never have to come back on coin talk well i'm gonna say this if you want to go to the craig wright trial we will fly you there like if you want to be our special craig wright correspondent and you want to go where is the trial it's in florida it's in florida yeah. yeah it sounds delightful bring the whole family <laughs> evan's book is called the mastermind it may or may not have to have an extra chapter tacked on at the end but it's pretty awesome already it's crazy that paul larue might be satoshi and you can write a whole book about him that doesn't even include like he has enough life narrative to to go uh, to go there. Um, I encourage people to go 
buy the book and scour it for evidence that I've not found. I like this. It's a mystery that you can solve at home, but the Dakota Ring is the mastermind out now by Evan Ratliff. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Aaron. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Tuesday, July 9th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $12,567. And that was Coin Talk. We're edited by James Nicholson. My co-host who is out this week is Jay Kang. Thanks to Evan Ratliff. Pick up his book, The Mastermind. Thanks to our friends over at Medium. You can find every single episode, including a transcript, at medium.com slash cointalk. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 